My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. Mika! And I'm Mika. Sean Lewis. Mika. However you say his name. I don't like him. And introduce yourself. I just did. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Lithgow podcast where you stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have stepped our foots back into found footage space. We're all great proponents of the found footage genre, and now we're going to be talking about one of the seminal works of found footage horror. Uh, maybe not due to its inherent quality, but sheer fucking impact. This changed things in the horror space pretty significantly. Uh, we of course have watched Paranormal Activity. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. I've been very busy at work this week, so I have very few things to talk about. Only three. Uh, one of which is a movie I did manage to get to the cinemas to see. It is The Menu, a satirical thriller directed by Mark Millard, uh, and it is about an assortment of food snobs who travel to the private island of the famous chef Slowick, played by Rafe Fiennes. Uh, and it's very exclusive, it's very artsy and pompous. It's almost like a theatre show of, like, making such a big deal out of all of these, like, ridiculously opulent dishes that no one would actually really want to eat. Um, but it soon becomes clear that Slowick has a dark ending to the evening in mind, and they are not his guests, but instead his victims. This is so fucking good, guys. Like, this is just so good. Like, full-on red alert, shadow in the cloud situation, but beyond that, just so damn well made and so good. It's it's a movie that was, like, made in a lab for me specifically. It is just another incredible example of Searchlight quietly just knocking stuff out of the park between, like, The Empty Man and The Night House and Barbarian and this. I mean, um, I'm really loving the stuff that they've been doing, but, but this is tense. It's surprising. It's extremely amusing. I think that the trailer gives too much away, but it also gives you the wrong impression of what the movie is. It isn't really a horror movie. It's not. It's it's a satirical thriller. But in terms of, like, violence and running around screaming and all of that stuff, there's very, very little of it in the movie. Like, the, the trailer kind of makes it look like this is going to be, like, most dangerous animal kind of thing. And that's not it at all. That's not at all it. There's a little more decorum. No, it's not just a little, it's a lot. It's a chamber piece. It takes place inside the dining area of the restaurant for 90% of the movie. And it is characters talking for 90% of the movie. Uh, it's an ensemble uh, thing. It's it's a fantastic script by Seth Reese and Will Tracy. It's clever. It's funny. It's about class and privilege. There's a lot of satire and social commentary in it. Everyone in the room is sort of insufferable, but a different type of insufferable. And the performances are all absolutely brilliant. It's an extraordinary cast. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicholas Holt, Judith Light, Janet McTeer, uh, John Leguizamo, Hong Chow. They're all really, really good in this. But the, the real success here is Slowick, who is just a magnificent character. Like, Truly an excellent piece of writing and an, a phenomenal performance. Fines is perfect. There is not a line reading you would change. He is so, so good as this guy. And if the Academy had any guts at all, he wouldn't just be nominated for an Oscar for it. He'd win it. It's 
so brilliantly amusing and dark and scary at times and sad at others. It's just a very complex character performed brilliantly uh, in a way that gives the movie such a strong spine of dramatic heft beneath, you know, the, the more obvious, like, thrillery elements. It just is one of the best movies I've seen this year. It is absolutely fantastic. There's not a chance in hell that it's not very near the top of my uh, list at the end of the year. It is a movie that was tailor-made for me in every way. It's a very strong year this year. Very, yes. Maybe not necessarily in terms of, like, big blockbuster stuff because there hasn't been as much to it, but in terms of, like, the interesting little genre movies that come Mm. out, really strong. Making my list is going to be really difficult. The two movies I saw at home were not as successful. Uh, First off, we start with The Thor. It is a body horror movie directed by Mark A. Lewis, and it follows a young woman named Evelyn Kruper, played by Martha McIsaac. She's going to visit her estranged father, Val Kilmer, on a dig in the Canadian tundra. He's sort of, like, looking at taking samples from beneath the permafrost. And she's gone up there with some uni students to go and visit him. But once they get there, they discover that the camp has been struck down by a a strange parasite that has been unfrozen, thawed, there is the title, uh, by global warming. And uh, a a perfectly preserved mammoth corpse has been uncovered. And in it is this parasite that has now gotten out and um, really is causing a whole bunch of issues uh, at this place. And they've got to try and control the infection and get help. But also at the same time, they can't let it get out because the modern, you know, current world just has no protection against this thing. This is laughable um, at times. It's kind of boneheaded, but also the climate politics of it are so ham-fisted. I mean, it's just the right side of Roland Emmerich. Like, it's barely any easier to take seriously than Day After Tomorrow. And so it becomes silly without necessarily intending to be. There's a lot about the script and the way that it deals with climate change in the way that it that it very much reminds you that this is a movie that was written when climate change was still, in a lot of people's minds, a theoretical rather than something that was already mm. happening and that we were seeing the effects yeah. of. Yeah. And so it's a lot of like, uh, I don't know how how best else to put it. it there's, there's a level of like thought exercise to it yeah. that feels like a little like it was arranged in a lab rather than something that actually feels real. But worse than that, worse though, it's just dull. Extremely uninteresting characters, a repetitive plot. The acting is poor to average. Uh, Decent locations, they did go and film in the middle of the wilderness and there's, a you know, just as far as the eye could see in every direction, just this frosty tundra. And they get some decent scope out of that. And the practical makeup that they do for the infections is suitably icky, but it just can't articulate its point and it loses its grip on any of the more sort of base level appeals like thrills and chills and gross outs and stuff. It just is a movie that can't ever do anything well enough to really justify itself. Uh, it's available for streaming on Plex in Australia if anyone's interested Lastly, this week, I saw The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. It is a urban fantasy movie directed by Terry Gilliam, and it follows a guy named Tony, played by Heath Ledger. He's rescued by a travelling group 
of circus people, basically. Um, he's been found by them hanging underneath a bridge, like hung from the neck. And he's rescued by them and their leader, Dr. Parnassus, played by Christopher Plummer. And he has amnesia. And so he's just sort of tagging along with them while he tries to figure out what happened to him. But Parnassus, uh, he discovers, is in a spiritual battle with the devil, who is played by Tom Waits. And they sort of have an ongoing competition over who can win people's souls. You know, can Parnassus save them and bring them to the light or can uh, the devil take them and corrupt them. And they do battle inside of this, this circus exhibit that they're traveling in, the Imaginarium, which sort of unlocks the subject's imagination uh, in poorly animated CGI sequences. And at the same time as all of that's going on, there is Parnassus's daughter, Valentina, played by Lily Cole, who is just about to turn 16. And due to a, a side bet that was made a long time ago, uh, Parnassus is very concerned because once she turns 16, her soul will become property of the devils. This is as good as it could be, considering that this was Heath Ledger's last movie and he died in the middle of production without having shot all of his scenes. Uh, it's a very clever save more than anything else. They really have come up with a way that doesn't necessarily, I mean, you can tell that it's a compromise. You can tell that this is not what it would have been if he had lived, but the way that they managed to knot it all together without using CGI, without using a body double, is very smart and really shows that Gilliam is a talented filmmaker. It helped that a lot of the most important stuff, like the stuff that still had left to be filmed, was stuff that they could do some tricks with, but it's still pretty remarkable that they were able to pull this together. And it's and it's absolutely not an enviable position to be in. No. You, you gotta do something. But at the same time, I'm not totally connecting with the movie, ever. And that that goes for all of the stuff that happened before the point that Heath Ledger died as well. This isn't a result of his death, it's a result of the story and the plotting. It is kind of a double shotgun blast of Terry Gilliam. Uh, that's a blessing and a curse. It is such creativity, but it's all over the place. It's best to just go along with it. To abandon logic and just sort of submit to Gilliam's sort of dreamlike tangents and flights of fancy, but it it is undeniably unfocused. It doesn't have the the elegance of my favourite Terry Gilliam movie, which is The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. That's not just one of my favourite Terry Gilliam movies. It's one of my favourite movies, full stop. And I don't think that any movie he's made since then has been as good or close to as good. I think that that was sort of... Admittedly, I haven't seen 12 Monkeys. That is the one that people seem to hold up as sort of his last masterpiece. But it's... There's just a level of, like... There was this period of his career where he was in real control and he had all these these visions, but he was able to, like, take that unhewn chunk of stone and sculpt it into something with real form and, and purpose. Whereas here it is, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, I don't know, the difference between a meticulously done piece of makeup over someone's face and like Homer Simpson's makeup shotgun, <laughs> you know, where he just, you know, shoots mascara and, and lipstick over people. Close your eyes, Marge. Oh no, I've set it to whore. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's sort of a, a good way of thinking of it. The, the characters' arcs are cool. Sometimes they're even surprising, but they're not totally cohesive. 
Uh, and it, it's very unclear as the movie goes on whose movie it is, who is supposed to be the main character. And this is a problem because there clearly is supposed to be a main character. It's not an ensemble film. It kind of feels like it should be, but there's there's these three people that we we're, we keep dancing between as who is meant to be our focal point, our audience surrogate. Is it supposed to be Tony? Is it supposed to be Valentina? Or is it supposed to be Parnassus? And the movie is can never quite juggle that in a way that evens the scales properly. Do you think that might be a result of the circumstances? No, I don't think so, because all all of that stuff from from everything that Gilliam says is that the amount of rewriting they had to do was incredibly minimal. They had to, like, move one scene later on and accommodate a different character, a different actor performing it. But other than that, it's the, the structure of the thing didn't change. And I, And again, it is a problem before, like... They had filmed, in, in terms of chronology, they had filmed pretty much everything that Ledger was in up until the beginning of the third act. And the third act is where they had to do all the tricks. This is a problem that is present in the first and second act. It is a great cast, though. I mean, Ledger, Plummer, Waits, uh, a, a young Andrew Garfield, uh, one of his first performances, just about to break out a year later with The Social Network. He's very good. It also, you know, docks some points from it for having Vern Troyer in blackface. But... You can also see the effects of it straining against the budget. Like, it's very clear that Gilliam didn't have the resources to back up this sort of wild imagination that he was putting on screen. It's very rough at some points. There are some stuff within the Imaginarium that uh, remind one of sort of a, a... a Teletubbies kind of looking place. Um, just a little too unreal and a little too... You can see the the pixels. But if you would like to watch it, it is... And, and you know, I, actually, I don't know if I'd recommend it as a movie, but I'd recommend watching it because it is just such a... There is very little out there like it. It's sort of Faust by way of Alice in Wonderland, by way of The Tempest. Like, it's a very strange thing that could really only be made by someone with the creative impulses and lack of self-awareness that Terry Gilliam can boast. <laughs> And I mean, Tom Waits playing the devil. Oh, yeah. He's the best thing in the movie. He's so good. The only problem I have is that they didn't find a way to work in like a musical number of him singing God's Way on Business or something like that. But uh, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Binge and Stan if anyone's interested. That's me done for the week. What about you guys? All right. We have had an incredibly strong Christmas week. Um, I say strong Christmas week because all of them were Christmas films. Not that all of the movies were strong. First, I will talk about Spirited, which is an Apple TV Plus original directed by Sean Anders. I'm going to preface this by saying this description is the official description, but it is not accurate. A musical version of Charles Dickens' story of a miserly misanthrope who is taken on a magical journey. That's not the story of Spirited, that's the story of A Christmas Carol. Uh, this plot description written by Bella P. on IMDb is far more accurate. Each Christmas Eve, the ghost of Christmas Present selects one dark soul to be reformed by a visit from three spirits. But this season, he picked the wrong unredeemable. Clint Briggs turns the tables on his ghostly host. Clint Briggs is played by uh, Ryan Reynolds, and the ghost of Christmas Present is played by Will Ferrell. Uh, Clint Briggs turns the tables on his ghostly host until Present finds himself examining his own past, present, and future. 
For the first time, A Christmas Carol is told from the perspective of the ghosts, in this hilarious musical twist on the classic Dickens tale. John, do your short bit about it, because I have much to say. I thought that this was fine. This had charm what it needed to, but it lacked the Christmas Carol vibe. This film doesn't seem like it knows what it's wanting to say, and seems caught up in having Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds have comedy beats and sing fun songs without really understanding if that actually fits the characters or not. I like some of the twists on the original tale here, the fact that it argues that one night of your perspective being shifted doesn't necessarily mean that you've changed for good, and I appreciate- It's done- it's been done better elsewhere. I appreciate the cast here. Octavia Spencer is really great here, she gets a few songs of her own, and they're, they're the strongest songs in the entire show. Patrick Page stars as Jacob Marley, and unfortunately they don't let him do his King of the Underworld thing for long enough, and I guess Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds are decent here, even though you're really showing the limits of both of their vocal talents with some of these tracks. Alright, so I take A Christmas Carol very seriously. (laughs) Best, best opening line (laughs) that you could have come up with. Not only is A Christmas Carol one of the great Christmas stories, it is also one of the great ghost stories. Um, It is a story about not a spirit harming one, but spirits helping to redeem people and prevent them from suffering further. Spirited has a major problem with justifying itself. There are a couple of twists and turns here that I can't talk about because they will spoil it, but the identity of Christmas present is not justified, his character arc is not justified, and one of the like really harsh twists um, in the Christmas yet to come portion, super hardcore. They didn't earn it though. Yeah, they really a- didn't earn it. It's a fantastic idea. Because it's exactly the kind of thing that has to happen for Ryan Reynolds' character. It's the logical conclusion to actions he takes in the film, and actions he convinces other characters to take in the film. But... The tone of the film doesn't do the legwork to get you to that point. Not at all. Um, And if they were going to spin into that, they should have spun harder uh, right at the end of the yet-to-come sequence. Uh, this is a musical, so you've got plenty of musical numbers. What fucking shits me is when they become obsessed with interrupting their own musical numbers to have Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell vamp at each other. That really, really makes me angry, because Patrick Page is given possibly the dopest idea for a song, it's called The Story of Your Life, where he's doing his Jacob Marley shit, and it's awesome. Until Ryan Reynolds butts in and just starts talking. We don't even get a full version of that song. It was the most promising number in the entire piece. Because Patrick Page is a professional Broadway performer. Will Ferrell is not. And while he has sung several times before, like uh, Step Brothers and more recently in Eurovision, The Story of Fire Saga, they limited his presence vocally in those movies, and focus more on professional singers. 
they focused more on songs that fit his specific voice. These do not fit his range, and you can tell that he's struggling, but he's been bitten by the musical bug. So you get the feeling that he really wanted to do this, beyond the idea that he could. Uh, I would have recast him with someone like, um, who's the other dude from Step Brothers? John C. John C. Riley. I would get John C. Riley. The songs that fit his range, we know that dude can sing, and he just fits the role better as Christmas present here. Overall, the movie just really struggles justifying itself. And a lot of that comes down to Ryan Reynolds and the character he plays. So his character is kind of like a modern day Scrooge. He's one of those dudes who disseminates like harmful fake news and misinformation. Okay. Like he is the, what you would choose as your modern day unredeemable person. He's like a PR guy who tells people to stow up controversy. It's an alternative facts kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. And I get that we're supposed to feel like he's redeemed himself by the end, but I don't feel that way. Like, he is someone who, in the story, has created such harm to people, beyond the pale of what Ebenezer Scrooge ever did. And we're meant to assume that by becoming friends with the Ghost of Christmas Present, he's learned his lesson? No. He does suffer a consequence, and it is a pretty big one, but they still do not justify anything. Uh, if you like musicals, skip it. If you like Christmas Carol, skip it. If you like both musicals and Christmas Carol, just watch the Muppets one. Uh, you can find that on Apple TV+. Plus. The second thing I have to talk about was way more successful. It is the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. Uh, you can find that on Disney+. Plus. It is directed and written by James Gunn. Star-Lord, Drax, Rocket, Mantis, and Groot engage in some spirited shenanigans in an all-new original special created for Disney+. Mantis, played by Pom Clementoff, and Drax, played by Dave Bautista, see that Star-Lord, played by Chris Pratt, is down in the dumps. Christmas really hasn't been that present in his life ever since he left Earth. And so they figure, we're gonna do him a real solid cheer him up on this Christmas, considering Gamora is gone. We're gonna go fetch him, Earth's greatest hero, Kevin Bacon, played by Kevin Bacon. We are going to kidnap Kevin Bacon. <laughs> so a good portion of this is Dave Bautista and Pom Clementoff chasing and assaulting Kevin Bacon. <laughs> which is, honestly, exactly what I needed at this time of year. This, oddly enough, does put me in the Christmas spirit. It's got everything that you kind of want from a Christmas special. It's got some musical numbers by the old 97, a Christmas number sung by Kevin Bacon himself, and it really feels like a prologue to the next Guardians film. We're seeing where they are currently after ditching Thor entirely. They've purchased nowhere from the Collector and are refurbishing the place as a base of operations for the Reavers. So they confirm that the Collector is still alive after the events of Endgame? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Because it was kind of left up in the air in Infinity War. Yeah, yeah. so they're rebuilding the place. Groot has grown up a little bit more. We get to meet Cosmo the Space Dog, voiced by Maria Bakalova. And she seems like a really fun addition to their group. But the real joy here is not with all of the Guardians. It is with the insane chemistry between Pom Clementeff and Dave Batista as Mantis and Drax, respectively. 
they have so many great scenes of just working off of each other. And you see why those characters need each other to balance out the scenes. When they're chasing Kevin Bacon around his house, Mantis is properly scary. Like, before this special, I didn't see what kind of martial threat Mantis could be. But you see her in fight scenes with a bunch of cops that show up because Kevin Bacon's called the police. Because he's being chased around by these super-powered people. And she's, she just tears them apart, basically, without killing them. She jumps around Kevin Bacon's house like a horror movie creature. Like she's one of those things from the bloody quiet place. And Dave Bautista is Dave Bautista. He's fantastic here, too. He doesn't understand Earth customs. Neither of them do. They end up getting just handed a bunch of money because people think they're just dudes in costumes. And yet, I just love how much heart this has. I really, really dug this. And this is like the second last thing that James Gunn is offering the MCU. There's this, then the next Guardians, and that's his involvement done. And this is kind of his strongest outing in the MCU, I would argue. It's funny, it's heartfelt. We get some interesting plot developments. Not what you'd expect from one of these special presentations, but there's a crucial piece of information in here. Uh, about the relationship between a couple of characters. And that's going to be, I think, important going forward. I love the I Don't Know What Christmas Is, But Christmas Time Is Here musical number at the beginning of the special. It's so bloody funny. But I have to give a lot of credit to Kevin Bacon here, because when he's being chased down, legitimate terror. Yeah. And he is fantastic because he's not like playing an egotistical version of himself. He's playing a 100% sincere version of himself. Yeah. Who wants to do his best by everybody who, I don't know, is just a pure soul. He's just 100% into the Christmas spirit. But, like, Drax and Mantis don't understand that the stories that Peter has been saying are based on movies. So they 100% legitimately think Kevin Bacon is some sort of god king. And they are so disappointed when he turns out to be an actor. In fact, they're disgusted. Um, again, the performance is really, really strong. The effects are actually really good. Yeah, That's not what I expected from this. They put a good amount of effort in. As it is, Guardians, the practical effects on a lot of the aliens are, again, stunning. But that's what you come to expect with this sort of thing. It is everything a Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special should have been, including a pun about Mrs. Claus working the pole that they managed to sleep slip in. Um, I had an amazing time with this. It's only about 44 minutes, so it's not any kind of, like, hectic, heavy watch. It's a Christmas special. It's light, it's, it's a Christmas special. It explains some things of the Guardian's lore that we were sort of not told about beforehand. Provides context. Sprinkles just a little bit of, like, answers about questions no one really had, but hey, it's nice to know. And has really nice message, too. It's about family, which is, like, broadly what the Guardians are about, but it's emphasized here in a Christmas way. It feels a lot more like Peacemaker, bizarrely. Kinda, in a tonal way. Anywho, you can find this on Disney+. Plus. I still think Disney+, Plus should release the Star Wars Holiday Special. The fact they haven't yet is uh, evidence that they are cowards. It's pure cowardice. I wouldn't surprise me if George Lucas snuck some sort of like contractual clause in when he sold 
Star Wars that that can never see the light of day. Yeah, but you know, years after he bites the big one, they're going to put it up there. We'll see. Yeah. We also watched a horror anthology Christmas movie this week. A Christmas horror story. It is the interwoven stories all taking pl- taking place on Christmas Eve in the town of, I think, Bailey Downs is what it's called. I think it's named after the town from the movie Ginger Snaps, which is a werewolf film. Through the general main story of a radio host played by a slowly getting more drunk William Shatner, <laughs> we are told the stories of a family that brings home more than just a Christmas tree. A student documentary that becomes a living nightmare. A Christmas spirit terrorizing a real shitty family. And Santa basically being in the Evil Dead. This is great. I'll let Harley say his little piece on this. So, I wasn't as hot on this as John was, but this is basically a Christmas version of Trick or Treat. Yeah. Um, it's got not as many intertwining storylines, but all of them are centering in this one town on Christmas. And that's really strong. Um, I can pass on a bunch of the other stories, but my absolute favorite is the zombie elves. Hmm. And like, it's not just that they're zombified. It is that evil dead thing like the deadites. They're cussing and swearing and threatening to cut his balls off. And that sort of thing to me is endlessly funny. Because it's Santa just, like, beating the shit out of zombie elves. And that works for me. It really does. Uh, one of the other effective segments was, I reckon, the thing with the changeling. Mm. That was really effective because of how they portray the changeling. Yeah. And it's not the kind of story you'd expect in a Christmas thing. But it's a welcome addition because it is, again, one of those cautionary tales about not going where you're not supposed to be and not stealing. That's a big thing here. Yeah, and they do a lot of good in that one of linking it to other stories. I really, really enjoyed this. I love anthology horror, because sometimes your idea can't be stretched to feature length. Sometimes a good 30-minute chunk is all that you have, and you just cut off all the fat. And that's what they've done with a lot of the stories here. The student documentary story, which stars Zoe Grand de Maison, who we would recognize as Evelyn Evanever from Riverdale, is really interesting. It plays on the whole virgin birth, silent night idea in a very fun way, and it makes it really dark and scary. And I think the scares in that one are very well handled, and the characters are very well handled. But the best sequence in this entire thing is everything everything to do with Santa Claus, because... He's proper Santa, he's kind, jolly, nice to everybody, he just wants this Christmas to go off without a hitch, and then the elves just start swearing and telling him to fuck off, and stabbing him in the feet with their tiny elf knives, and you're just seeing this really kind man being put through the ringer, and it's brilliant. The There are so many great... Parts of the ending here that I don't want to get into, but it is nasty. It is one of two ways this film could have ended, and I'm so glad they chose this, because it really goes for the jugular. William Shatner is actually really fun here. He seems like he really cares about the material, 
And over the course of the film, he's got, you know, a bottle of alcohol and some eggnog. Slowly, the eggnog gets tossed aside, and he's just drinking the whiskey out of the bottle, which is really fun energy. And the effects here are actually really good. There seems to have been a pretty decent budget here, and it was not what I was expecting. There's a lot of great filmmaking showcased here by the many directors of the sequences. And I really, really enjoyed this. I love Christmas horror things. Because it feels like, a lot of times, Christmas films don't understand the inherent freakiness of the fact that he sees you when you're sleeping, and he knows when you're awake. He sneaks into your house on Christmas Eve and leaves things there. It's also a cold and dark season. It's a cold and dark season, exactly. Well... In some places, not not for us. Well, not not for us. This feels really, really fun. And I really enjoyed this. We found this on Shudder. I believe that it's on a few different countries' Shudders if you're using a VPN. So just search around and have a look as to where you can find it. I do thoroughly recommend it. It was better than I thought it was going to be. I have to give mad props to George Boozer, who plays Santa as well. He's being given a lot of interesting stuff to do. We also watched a Disney short film called Mickey's Christmas Carol. This is a classic Disney animated film where it has Disney characters play the roles in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. So we've got Mickey Mouse as Bob Cratchit, Scrooge McDuck, obviously, as Ebenezer Scrooge, and a few other characters who I don't want to spoil the appearance of, but... One of them in particular, Christmas Past, is just perfectly chosen. I really enjoyed this a lot. This is quick, it's breezy, it skips through a lot of the chaff that you would get in an adaptation, because it's only 40 or so minutes long, and sorry, 20 or so minutes long. Is this the one from the 80s? Yeah, it needs to get to things quicker, so it really jumps, and it really moves, but when it's dark it really goes forward but i'll let harley have a little thing to say so like i said i take christmas carol very seriously and this is a pretty decent adaptation it is very breezy and it's incredibly abridged what we have goofy's jacob marley for less than five minutes oh far less than five minutes more like a minute and a half yeah and eh, it's not my favorite adaptation because of the brevity but the art is outstanding. And so, there's something they do with the Ghost of Christmas Present. Uh, because he's he becomes he becomes giant. Yeah. And he carries Scrooge around walking through London streets. Like as this big giant. Almost like a Christmas kaiju. Yeah, and that's kind of that's a very effective visualization of Christmas Present. Yeah, it's an interesting spirit. interpretation. Yeah, and that kind of thing I really dug. Yeah, I had a decent time with this. Tiny Tim was not nearly as emaciated as he should be. I'm thinking, like, Muppets Christmas Carol-type Tiny Tim. Like, he's a fucking tiny frog in that. And in this, he should have been a lot smaller and weaker. I need my Tiny Tim incredibly vulnerable for the story to work. What was it that you said the moment Tiny Tim showed up on screen? I think I remember it vividly. You just want to kick him. Those were your (laughs) words. The ones that came out of your mouth when you saw... This adorable little mouse with a crutch. He said, you just want to kick him. Yeah, because he's not weak enough. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean he's not weak enough? 
Tiny the, Tim needs to be literally, like Literally, the ghost frail. of Christmas present says, Scrooge asks, what's wrong with the boy? And ghost of Christmas present says, you just want to kick him. <laughs> anyway. A little uh, bit dark for Disney, I would argue. Oh, like, okay, as, as Ebenezer Scrooge, you've got Uncle Scrooge. Yeah. Like, that's a pretty perfect one-to-one. You've got Mickey as Cratchit. You've got uh, Donald Duck as Fred. Yeah. Which is brilliant. D- don't reveal who the spirits are. I think that's a thing you just need to see because you'll see it and you'll be like... Christmas Past is perhaps the best reference. It's the only person who makes sense. For the role, yeah. He's perfect. Yeah, and when you see it, you'll be like, it, it could only be him. This guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's very breezy. Yeah. But I really enjoyed this, and... The animation's really good. The animation's fantastic. It feels like a real classic Disney animation. But its brevity leads it to being a lot more focused, almost laser-focused, on the specific beats they need to hit. So we, you can find this on Disney+. Plus. Uh, so now we will play for you the trailer to Paranormal Activity. Def camera on my girlfriend Katie. She thinks there's something in the house. I don't know. You believe me, right? The doors are locked. Alarm is on. If anything walks through here, it's gonna leave a pretty good footprint. Did you hear that? Oh my god. There's footsteps in, but there's no footsteps out. You cannot run from this. We'll find you. This woman, same things happen to her. Oh, God. I feel like breathing on me. Looks like something big here. You stop following me with the camera! I'm in control. You got Paranormal activity. Rated R. You demanded it. Now playing in theaters everywhere. That was the trailer for Paranormal Activity. It is a found footage horror movie directed by Oren Pelly, and it follows Katie, played by Katie Featherston, and Mika, played by Mika Sloat, a young couple who have recently moved in together. Soon things start to go bump in the night, and Katie tells Mika about something she's kept hidden. When she was a child, she was terrorised by what appeared to be a supernatural presence that would appear at the foot of her bed and call her name. It faded over time, but it terrified her. She was hoping that that was the end of it, but unfortunately for her, Mika is an idiot. He doesn't really believe Katie's ghostly warnings to begin with, which is fair enough, but after he buys a camera to monitor the house with at night and begins to see inexplicable things on the replay... He does pretty much everything he can to piss whatever it is off. As the hauntings grow more violent, a desperate Katie seeks answers from psychics and Google searches. She learns that the haunting does not bear the hallmarks of a ghost, but instead appears to be a demon, a thesis given quick support by the appearance of three-clawed footprints. Terrified at losing hope, Katie searches for something to end the terror and give her back some peace. Mika's more concerned about talking to the demon with a Ouija board, though, So would it surprise you if I told you that they're both doomed? So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on paranormal activity. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. 
this is a really important step in the journey of found footage. This is where we start seeing a lot of people make some more low-budget found footage films. This started that trend, even though this is actually a really well-constructed, really well-made, really well-acted piece of media. We're talking about this due to its impact it's had. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Like it or love it. Woof, what an impact it's had on the industry. It sparked the creation of an entire franchise, a bunch of other found footage stuff. Mika is an idiot, and he is the worst boyfriend I've seen recently in media. Really dug this movie. Stillness is the flavor this time around, not movement. And that's really effective. Like, that shot of the bedroom is iconic. It's just Mm. iconic. I think that... Even beyond its impact, this is a just a really well-made movie. It's smart in the way that it uses its limitations. It has that Blair Witch Project style of the underdog, the scrappy underdog that's doing what it's chosen to do really well. I think it's kind of in search of an ending. I think narratively it doesn't really have anywhere to go in the third act. But I think it is genuinely scary. And like you said, Harley, the way that they use stillness, the way that they just keep you searching in the background of every shot for whatever's going to happen next, that, that is this movie's greatest success. So, we begin with a production history. Oren Pelly was inspired by the Blair Witch Project. It, it made him wonder if he could get into the film industry with a micro-budget indie. And the story that he came up with was inspired by something that had happened the first time he lived in a house instead of an apartment building. He wasn't used to the kind of silence that comes from living in a house. He was used to hearing people in neighbouring apartments, in the hallways, above, below. And instead, there was all of this dead silence, except every now and then you could hear the house settling, the Mm. creaking and the contracting of the wood. It's something he was hyper aware of in all of the silence. There were also a few moments where... Some stuff fell off the shelves at night and made a bang when he was in his room. He's not saying that it was supernatural, but it got the gears turning for uh, what he was thinking of doing. But he really decided to go for it in 2005, and he used his own savings to fund the movie. He spent a year writing the film and doing pre-production work. Pre-production here meaning renovating his house to suit the script he had written. Stuff like removing all of the carpeting from the upstairs so that they could do the footsteps and make it safe for Katie Featherston to be dragged along the floor. And he auditioned a bunch of amateur actors to find his two leads. There was so much improv that was going to be involved in this movie. That was the way he wanted to shoot it, again, taking inspiration from Blair Witch Project. But that meant that when he was auditioning actors, he would just ask people the second they walked into the door, why do you think your house is haunted? And if any of them hesitated at all, he would immediately kick them out. He just didn't have the time or the money to spend searching through these people. And he found out later on that that apparently really upset some people and some people would leave the office crying. Out of that process, he found Katie Featherston and Mika Sloat. And they were brought back again to re-audition with each other. And Pelly was impressed by their ability to 
play off of each other and build off of each other and not be phased by the other's improvisations. They were only paid $500 each for this film. The whole budget for the film was $15,000, so that was actually a significant chunk of the budget. Sloats had been a cameraman for a sort of a, a college student news TV station that they had done at the place he went to university. And Pelly actually had to pull him back from obsessing with some of the angles. He was making it too clean. Mm. He was too good. Yeah, it was becoming too clear that he had prior experience. And so what Pelly made him do was close the viewfinder. So everything oh. that you see in what's going on is is still him knowing how to work a camera and like it's much less juddery and jittery than a lot of other found footage movies as a result but he doesn't have the viewfinder to see exactly what the shot is that's actually really clever yeah pelly wanted the movie to be suspenseful rather than violent mm. and that mm. was great because suspense is cheaper than violence <laughs> yeah <laughs> And a lot of the stuff that they did in this movie was dead simple. The doors opening and closing, that's just fishing wire and crew members crouching out of frame sometimes. The bit with the Ouija board coming on fire was the most complicated thing. And that was, I mean, that's literally just Oren Pelly standing out of frame holding a fire extinguisher in the middle of his living room. Like, it is his house that they're filming all of this in. <laughs> I found that out as we were watching it. and. I was just looking at all the different rooms, just thinking, he actually has a really nice house. Yeah, he was a, vid- he was a video game developer before yeah. this. So he was making, and it, 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 he says in the interviews I watched with him, he was making good money, but he hated the job. And mm. he just was like beating his head against a brick wall, wanting to get out of there. I love that it's this cost-saving thing of not searching for a location. He's got a location. He's just going to film it in his house. It feels very much like a... Really well-made student film. Mm. Another thing, when Katie is pulled out of bed and dragged along the hallway, she just has a, a bungee cord on her leg that's then rotoscoped out. Uh, I, I was trying to figure out how they did that. Yeah, and it's just some crew members in one of the back bedrooms pulling her. They very cleanly rotoscoped that out. Mm. Incredibly well yeah. done. One of the benefits of prepping the movie for a year in his own house was that he was able to try all of these tricks with his own friends beforehand Mm. and film it all to see what it looked like. But the movie itself was shot over the course of a week, and it was a very small crew. Everyone took leave from their day jobs. They weren't actual professionals or anything. Like, Katie Featherston wanted to be an actor, but she was waitressing full-time at that point, so she took leave from her job to come and do this. And, in fact, a lot of them just lived in the house while it was being shot. Mm. The first cut was screened to Pelly's next-door neighbours, who was a military veteran and his 17-year-old wrestler son, and it freaked them out, which made Pelly uh, <laughs> think that he was onto something. Do you think he showed it to his neighbours so he could be like, okay, this was why you heard screaming last <laughs> week? Probably. <laughs> just don't call the cops. This is this is why you've heard all this. Well, because they were recording, they were doing it in at night as well. Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't doing it during the day. Yeah, he had to have told his neighbours about the filming. Yeah. yeah. But now he had to find distribution. Mm. And he first went to a bunch of indie distributors without success. During this period, however, Jason Blum saw it. His company already existed at this point, Blumhouse, but it wasn't what it is now. And he his day job was as an executive at Miramax. Miramax didn't want it. 
But Blum likes the movie enough that he just joined the project as a producer on his own to help get it over the line. And the success of this movie and the the massive profit it made is really what props Blumhouse up to become the studio that it is now. Always bet on the little guy. Yeah, obviously then a number of very canny choices following on stuff like Insidious and The Purge and stuff mm. like that. Because, I mean, look at Blumhouse's track record. The Paranormal Activity franchise, the Insidious franchise, the Purge franchise, Sinister Oculus, Whiplash Bizarrely, The Gift, Hush, Split, Ouija, Get Out, Happy Death Day, Halloween. Halloween. Like, just brilliant. And this is sort of the beginning of the current era of horror. It's so cool to see that Genesis point. Pelly later collaborated with Blum again. Pelly was a producer on the Insidious movies. Mm. So they weren't able to get distribution, so they decided to try and take it to film festivals instead. And they were turned down by every film festival, except for Screamfest, which was those other film festivals lost. But Pelly knew that this was the, their shot, that if the movie didn't play here, then they were dead in the water. And so he had to get good attendance. He had to get people to come and see. So he edited his own TV spot that he then paid his own money to have aired in the Los Angeles city limits. Um, you know, that this is where it's playing on this day. Uh, and he even went so far as on his days off to just walking around heavily populated areas of Los Angeles handing out flyers. I love the effort he put into this. He mm. truly believes in the project and you love to see the passion. The film debuted at Screamfest on October the 14th, 2007, and it was a big success. It won a lot of festival awards, and it got representation for both Pelly and for the film. It got Pelly a manager, and it got, you know, representation for the film of, okay, here's some professionals who are going to come in and try and sell this. But distributors still weren't biting. There were a few offers for, oh, yeah, we'll put this out on DVD if you want, but Pelly thought after having seen the reaction of the crowd at Screamfest that there might be something here if he could get it into theatres. And so he held out and decided to keep playing festivals instead. Now that they had had that success at Screamfest, other paths were open to them and other festivals started inventing them. And ultimately, the film got the attention of DreamWorks, but there was a catch. They wanted to buy the movie so they could remake it with a bigger budget and a more well-known cast. And they had been pushing it around for so long at this point that Pelly relented. He signed that contract and DreamWorks bought the film for $350,000. It got them the domestic rights and the worldwide rights for any sequels if the movie was a success. But Pelly still wasn't quite over the idea of putting what he had made out himself. And so he managed to get a deal out of DreamWorks executives. It's just like, hey... Just get an audience of paying of paying members, just random members of the public, and have the executive board of DreamWorks come and watch it in a theatre with just members of the public. They did, and then all of a sudden DreamWorks was like, oh, yeah, maybe we just put this out on its own, save ourselves some money. Imagine, imagine the timeline in which they just said no. Hmm. Well, at that point, it was going to be a, a special feature on the Blu-ray release. The DVD Blu-ray release was going to be the original. Mm. But... That huge audience reaction convinced the DreamWorks executive board to go with the original movie and also to give it a theatrical release. 
But everyone knew the ending had problems. The original ending, Katie died. She just, it, it is the, the same ending as we got, except Katie, there are two endings. I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to remember which one came first. I think the ending that came first was the one where Katie just walks back into the bedroom, looks into the camera and slits her own throat. But then there was another ending that was tested that had Katie basically just come back upstairs after killing Mika, sit down and start rocking. Then there was a time lapse. For two days. Yes. And then at the end, her friend comes back in. You hear her coming in downstairs and calling out. Calling out, she finds Mika's body, screams, runs out of the house. Half an hour later, the cops get there. They start searching the house. They go up. All of a sudden, Katie sort of snaps out of her daze and she starts screaming, where's Mika? And she's panicking and she's still holding the bloody knife and she sort of starts running towards the cops and they shoot her dead. And I, I actually kind of like that because it shows that the demon is really an asshole. <laughs> that he's going to ruin the day of so many people all in the world. It's the spite move. Having seen that alternate ending, it goes on too long. It takes too yes, much time yes, to get there. The, you know, the sort of frenzy that we're at at that point when Mika is killed, it disappears by the time the cops get there. We've just spent too much downtime between them. It's, it's allowed the temperature to go down again. So... There was a problem with that ending and they all knew it. And so they came up with the the one that we've got of Mika's body flying at the camera, Katie grinning and then turning the camera off. They tested that ending alongside, I'm, I'm pretty sure, the cop ending. And the audience's reaction was much stronger to the one that had Mika's body flying at the camera. Cause it, and it, it is a better ending. I don't, I don't like the distorted demon face. Yeah, it's so quick, though. They they really lent on that in some of the later entries, but it's not too bad here. It also, of course, this ending ensured that there could be all of those sequels. Mm. So there was an 11th hour bump in the road, though. The film had been on track for a 2008 Halloween release, but at that time, DreamWorks had a distribution agreement with Paramount Pictures, and there was some corporate disagreements at that point, and that deal dissolved. That relationship between DreamWorks and Paramount broke up and it became a, a big to-do about who owns the rights for which movies, who gets the kids of the divorce. Paramount ended up retaining uh, paranormal activity in the negotiations, but all of a sudden the executive board at DreamWorks that had really championed the movie were gone. And so the movie sat in limbo for a while. Uh, Paramount wasn't really acting on it. They weren't really putting it out anywhere. And Pelly decided, okay, showing the executive board the movie with an audience worked once before. Let's try it again. Let's see if we can have the same effect on the Paramount people. He managed to browbeat them into agreeing to come. He scheduled something. None of them turned up. They just didn't believe in the movie and he was having a really hard time getting anyone to do anything with it. Eventually though there was a leadership shuffle at the top of Paramount that cleared the way to see the movie released but again it was more of a okay let's get this off the books kind of thing. Confidence wasn't high on it they just wanted to deal with it and sh shut this Oren Pelly guy up. They only gave it a $700,000 marketing budget. Well actually they didn't. They gave it a $350,000 marketing budget that Oren Pelly added $350,000 of his own savings to. The film began its US release on the 25th of September 2009. I say began because Paramount had no idea what they had and they had not put it in theatres with much confidence. When it started, it was getting the tiniest, smallest limited release 
that it could get. It was 12 theaters uh, in its first week, and it kept expanding. It exploded. In its first week at the box office, it was number 48 against Surrogate's Fame and Pandora. To begin with, Paramount was just taking it to cities where enough people had registered their interest on basically a petition on the movie's website. And that started to create interest. The box office started to like perform really high in the theatres that it was playing. And every week after that, it gradually expanded out. And as it became clear it was a breakout hit, Paramount finally bit the bullet and took it wide. And its its widest release in theatres was actually in its eighth week of release, where, when it was in 2,712 theatres. It was a genuine sleeper success, and it was a monster financial hit. It made 190 million worldwide on a $15,000 budget. It is, I believe they mention on the interviews, I, I forgot to verify this independently, but they do mention on the disc that it is the second most profitable movie ever made behind The Blair Witch Project. Do you ever think Owen Pelly went up to the executives after the fact and was like, you're fucking welcome? <laughs> the studio knew what they had by the time it came time to release it in Australia. When it came out here on the 4th of December 2009, it did get a wide release in 265 theatres, and it was number one at the box office against Where the Wild Things Are, Zombieland, and The Informant. It made $7.8 million of its gross here. The film enjoyed critical acclaim. It has an 83% Rotten Tomatoes rating, and the critics' consensus there reads, Using its low-budget effects and mockumentary method to great results, Paranormal Activity turns a simple haunted house story into 90 minutes of relentless suspense. The movie also got some awards attention from some of the more mainstream, younger-focused awards bodies. At the MTV Movie Awards, Katie Featherston was nominated for Best Scared as Shit Performance. At the People's Choice Awards, it was nominated for Favourite Independent Movie. And at the Teen Choice Awards, the movie won Choice Movie Horror Thriller. And Mika Sloat was nominated for Choice Movie Actor in a Horror Thriller. After the huge success, Paramount was suddenly eager for more paranormal activity. And over the next six years, five sequels were released, culminating in the franchise's finale in 2015. I will be talking about these sequels in depth next week in the What We've Been Watching section, but... They definitely got weird as the things went on. I'm sure we will be talking about some of those sequels plot points in this deep dive. So just open spoilers for pretty much everything through to Ghost Dimension, which was the finale, quote unquote, that they put out in 2015. I say quote unquote because this is a horror franchise and of course that finality is only ever temporary. Paramount revived the series in 2021 for a new installment as a streaming exclusive on Paramount+. Plus. Next of kin. Yes, and it is largely disconnected. It is the same demon, but it has no ties to Katie and and all of the stuff that the rest of the franchise Apparently they're in on. working on another one? They are. Paranormal Activity, The Other Side, is currently in production and will come out next year, 2023, uh, and it will return to the Katie storyline. It's going to follow a group of friends who move into an old house in the 90s. Yes, which they've already done that. That was the plot of Ghost Dimension was people moving into her old house. (laughs) But all right, we'll do that one again. We'll be interested to see, especially given how Ghost Dimension ended, it'll be interesting to see how they pick that up. 
Because I suppose, spoiler alert for Ghost Dimension, this whole franchise, Katie thread of the franchise, ends with the demon successful and attaining yeah. physical form in our world. Mm. Asmodeus. Yeah. Okay, so let's just get some a few bits of fine details out of the way. So we will learn as the franchise goes on that this is all connected not just to Katie's, Katie herself, but her family, that there's this sort of like deal with the devil that was made years ago that basically it's a firstborn male of the family line after that point. Yeah, yeah, sort of like the grandmother in Hereditary doing the whole thing with Paimon. Yeah, so for many years there hasn't been a male born in the family line and it turns out that Katie's sister has just had a son and her family does some sort of ritual to get it moved over to Katie but that doesn't end up working out because then Katie just gets possessed, comes back, kills everyone and steals the baby boy. But mm. then it gets, like, weirder and wilder the longer that franchise Witch goes on. Witch cult! Witch cult! Yes, a coven of witches, and then you find out that they're, like, trying to build an army of possessed people or something, and Katie's not the only person that's being possessed, and, like, the boy, Katie's nephew, isn't the only kid. There's, like, a whole bunch of them in the mix at any one time. Asmodeus has got his fingers in a lot of pies. He's franchising. He's getting it out there. That whole thing becomes a bit ridiculous by the end, quite frankly. And yeah. Oh, yeah, it's so stupid. Wrapped it up when they did. A as you said, it is Asmodeus is the name of the demon that they talk about. There was... I was trying to find it. It's they call him Toby, which is a name that starts popping up in the third movie, which is a prequel that shows Katie and her sister as little girls. And this is a name that keeps popping up in the sequels after that, that this is how the demon basically presents itself to the children that it haunts when it is there, just their imaginary friend before it starts to get creepy and violent. It presents itself to them as a, as a friend called Toby. Actually, they, they didn't name the demon as Asmodeus until the newest one, Next of Kin, which is apparently about people making a documentary in an Amish community that hmm. <laughs> the Amish community comes under siege by him. Yes, it, it got all kind of strained. I'm sure we will talk when we discuss the end of this movie, the additional information that later movies give about the ending. I think that's fun. I do, but I th I think that it's the, it, it is the franchise at its most wacky. On the one hand, it's very, very interesting, and we will talk about it when we get there. But on the other hand, it is the best piece of evidence that that exists for like, yeah, you guys need to wrap this up now because it's... Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> If anything, The Marked Ones is actually really fun, and it's really well made. And I, it is. I, it's my least favourite. It's The Canary's Dead, guys. Yeah. The gas has seeped into the mine. We're all choking on the fumes. Kind of feels like the gravy train's gonna come to an end, guys. So, I haven't yet rewatched Ghost Dimension. I did see that one in the cinemas when it came out. It was the only paranormal activity movie that I saw in the cinemas. But I have gotten up to... I watched Marked Ones last night. So, yeah. I'm almost complete my run-through of them. I would say that Paranormal Activity 3 is really good. It's because it's using old-school technology. Yeah, that's the prequel about Katie and her sister as little girls. That's really strong, and I think it's actually probably the best story out of any of them in terms of, like, coming up with a narrative through line, a beginning, a middle, and an end, an actual, an actual finale, a third act, rather than just a sudden stop. Yeah. Everything other than that, two is okay. The fourth one is 
not great technically, but, you know, it's not a good movie, but I have fun watching it. I actually think the Paranormal Activity, the marked ones, was the weakest one for me. I like the change of location. Yeah, that is something that they do every time through. The second movie, it is security cameras. Mm. And in the third movie, it's old school, like, bulky cameras that require the tapes to be swapped out and then the fourth movie it's webcam and the connect yeah and in marked ones it's like a gopro and it's an apartment building this time so there's a bit, little bit of a, a different thing there of course the gimmick in ghost dimension is like a special camera that lets you see the demons or the activity or whatever's going on which, which was a mistake yes but also you need something and if that's going to be your last yeah. movie might as well yeah fuck it why not and they had all they had already kind of experimented with that with the frankly phenomenal connect product placement in Paranormal Activity Four. I didn't think that's just incredible that this is this is Microsoft promoting their motion technology with like you can see ghosts with it. Not only that, ghost hunters use the Kinect sensor. They've like taken the Kinect sensor and like built it into their own tech. Like real hmm. ghost hunters use this shit because it does have that sometimes in dark uninhabited places the stick figures show up and shit obviously it's hard to say how legit that is anyone who had a connect and has played with the connect knows that it ain't perfect tech guys it's just yeah it's just such bald face product placement and i yeah. i gotta admit i do get a laugh out of that it's like in the first season of house of cards when kevin spacey's talking to Corey stoll and Corey stoll's talking about how his uh his kids have a PlayStation Vita, and all of a sudden Kevin Spacey's like, oh, I love the PlayStation Vita. What games do they have? And it's like, Corey Schultz's like, oh, they have all the games. They're always playing the PlayStation Vita. They love it. And it's, like, so awkward. I can't imagine Frank from House of Cards being like, turning to the camera and being like, you know, I love playing video games on my <laughs> days off. Really helps me become a different person. He turns to the camera and says, well, everything I said was a bold-faced lie. I'm actually a Nintendo stan. It's been a long time since I saw the first season of House of Cards, but uh, from what I can remember, you actually do see him playing his own Vita at different points. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Like, he's in the back of his car being driven to Congress or something, and he's playing the Vita. Like, I, I, What's I, he playing? Fucking Sudoku? What game fits that character? Let me look it up. Something incredibly bloody and violent. What, is he playing online games to get in chat rooms with kids? I mean, fuck. <laughs> Can you play online games on the Vita? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had an online thing. Oh, that is one of the dumbest pieces of product placement I've ever heard of. It's like that and the fact that they had people bidding become the owner of one of the trucks that Spider-Man jumps on, hunting Uncle Ben's killer. No, no, John. It's like, it's <laughs> the PS Vita in House of Cards and the Vast Water in Grown Ups. <laughs> Those are the ones that shit me the most. Oh, the the Kmart one is actually fine, but the Voss water is bullshit. I can't I can't find the shot of him playing with it. It doesn't appear to be on YouTube. Although I did find a news article that um, confirms that in the third season, there are like scenes of him playing Monument Valley on the iPad and the Stanley Parable on PC. Is that a PS Vita? Which games does he have? All of them. I have a console at home I play sometimes to relax. I ought to get one of these for the car. <laughs> that is... Oh, that's much worse than I thought. Yeah. So, what they've done there is... At least... Okay, to get back to paranormal activity... At least it's activity, organic. At, le 
at least it's organic. At least it's like a thing. Oh yeah, in the and plot. at least and it's at least just like that one. That whole fourth one's about teens, right? So it's like okay, yeah. the teens have a connect, and there's like a little kid in the house too. So they're playing tennis with the with her little brother. All right, it's not like yeah, it's not like a middle aged southern congressman talking about the latest <laughs> PlayStation handheld. It's so, the way he so, says PlayStation Vita. Like Kevin Spacey couldn't be less interested. <laughs> All things aside, Kevin Spacey's a good actor. That is a dog shit line reading, <laughs> if I've ever heard one from him. My god. Back to Paranormal Activity itself, this first one. Like we've said before, a lot of the found footage stuff we've addressed, Blair Witch Project, Cloverfield, Wreck, movement, is incredibly mm. important, especially in Wreck, due to its complexity of staging and performance. But here, stillness is king mm. stillness is what's most important and i said before that shot of the bedroom when the camera's on its tripod that is iconic and i mean that's when the movie i think is doing the scariest stuff because you're locked in position you can't run you can't get out you're there and you have to watch the moment the camera gets picked up and is moving there feels like there's a little safety almost like you're being swaddled in the arms of the operator if that makes sense? Does that make sense or am I nuts? It confines your field of vision. It feels it feels like feels like there's less control that you there's less of a remove, a less of a distance. Mm. And if you look at the shot, it's just a little bit tilted at an angle, just just a little bit, so that it feels off. The fact that the room isn't the camera isn't placed symmetrically. No. The bathroom on the Left-hand side of the frame, you've got the door, which is incredibly important for everything they stage. And then there's the bed. And you get to watch them sleep. Yeah. And that is the true brilliance here. Because you get to see the shit happen while they're sleeping that they have to look at afterwards. There's the Mm. part when they've left to go to the party, the camera is still running, and, and, and that's in a lounge room. And you see... The wind blow through, the ghost brush the leaves, and the Ouija board, the the planchette moves, and it gets set on fire. I think one of the interesting things that the movie does is that it just holds the frames for so long. Mm. Yeah. But it, it takes its time, it's patient about it, and it does get a lot of tension out of the fact that something is moving in the background. Or maybe something's mm. not moving, but you're just you're constantly searching the frame to look at anything that might be out of place or anything that's doing something it shouldn't be. And that's what's so strong about the demon being invisible. Mm -hmm. Whenever you hear that low rumble, you know for sure it's there, but it's always watching. Yeah. Yeah. It's always present. There is no escape from this, like they say throughout the movie. You can run anywhere you like. It's not about the house. And that's something that the second movie and the third movie trade on a lot I won't say better, but in terms of sequelizing this franchise, they do something clever, which is that they choose houses and locations and points of view for the camera that have a much greater field of vision in terms of, like, you can see back down hallways Mm, and you can see back in other rooms. And what it's looking at, there's a lot more background stuff that they can Mm. do tricks with. You're constantly searching in the shadows and things. And it's something that, as with a lot of things in the franchise, that it slowly just it loses its impact as it goes on yeah by the time you get to the end of that original run 
as I am at now. You you know by the basic setup that the, all of this is going to happen. No one's actually going to be in it, in any real danger until, for some reason, in the third act, the demon decides to pull his thumb out and just start killing people. Mm. Like, yeah. Why he doesn't do that in the first instance, I don't know. He mucks around for quite Maybe a while. Maybe he's just a dramatic bitch. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe the demon just loves the three-act structure. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> the it's- only three-act structure is in the third movie. Everything else just sort of stops. Well, I do like how in the beginning of the Ouija board thing, Mika and Katie are having an argument the moment they leave. It's the way that the windows sort of blow and the leaves move is almost like the demon is running his hands through it and is like, Oh, finally, I've got the home to myself now. <laughs> and so he just sits down and starts playing with the Ouija board. Finally, I have a time to get my nails done. My my feet are horrific. <laughs> my hooves. My hooves are terrible. This first movie reflects a, a much more classic structure than some of the other ones. Like The other ones, I will give them credit for trying things. They try some, some of them are more successful than others. I think the two and three, again, are where they're doing... Okay, they're making some interesting choices, but when it comes to time for the the last three movies to sort of cash the checks that have been written by the first three, they kind of get really, really messy, but... Well, the first one has simplicity. Yes, the first movie is a simple sort of structure. It's very much a low-budget sort of poltergeist thing Mm. Mm. of... Having all of this stuff in the in the background, moving, you know, cabinets opening and closing by themselves, but right down to psychic coming, and you get the exposition of what they are, and you know, googling information, what's a ghost, what's a demon. You get that that psychic that comes in there, and what's a ghost, what's a demon, what's an immortal child. <laughs> you know, the important things one has to Google in times of great stress. Yeah, but I do I do like how. When he gets into the house, he does his whole spiel of... I'd like to spend a little bit of time getting to know you, getting a little bit more information than what we shared over the telephone. Oh, getting to know both of you, what's what's your life like, what's your relationship like. Uh, more often than not, things that you've shared with me can be explained away by simple things like squeaky houses or rattling pipes or you know some normal thing that's going on mm-hmm. it just has people a little bit more freaked because they're under a lot a high degree of stress and i like that i like that the psychic seems to be doing his due diligence and he seems to know his shit like well usually when we're talking about a ghost it was a person demon this was. doesn't feel like a person its behavior is not reflecting that yeah and i like how he says look there are many different views of what these kinds of evil spirits could be demons, devils, whatever they are, this is something that was never human to begin yeah. with. I do think he gets he gets probably the best line of the movie, like the best showstopper wham line of the movie, the best dramatic moment that isn't a, a scare, mm. which is when he's having that conversation to start off with and Mika says something like, I know what it wants and then we just give what it wants and then gone. Because what it probably wants is Katie. Yeah. Mm. That's the bit where you're like, oh shit. That's the bit where it sort of seems like, okay, there's intent behind this. There's something, yeah. there's something to the fact that it's following her, or it mm. seems to be following her. And I like when he comes back, he steps into the room and he's like, nope, <laughs> it doesn't want me here. It, I'm, I can't 
handle this kind of stuff. I will try to help you, but I can't be in this room like, anymore. Beyond that, he's probably like, oh, this vibe sucks. Yeah. Like, super bad. He's right to go, because given all the people that just get killed by being in the house in the later entries of the series, he, he lucks out. This movie has the lowest body count of any of the others. Mm. Actually, it only has, only has the one. Mika. But Mika, yeah. Let's talk about Mika. Yes, let's. This shithead. What a shit. I don't know who to blame. I don't actually think Pelly is to blame. Well, I think he is in the sense... He is to blame in the sense that he has sort of doomed the character by ceding so much authority to Mika Sloat. Because I think that the power of improvisation that Mika Sloat has, he's not as good at it as Katie Featherston is. And he has a really hard time coming up with justifications on the fly for the character's behavior. And he Mm. defaults to shitty boyfriend who's not listening to his partner Yeah, uh, a little too often. It's like, if she tells you to put the camera down, fucking put the camera down. And and in fact, the only real justification we get for why he is so shitty and why he is like blocking her from contacting the psychic or the exorcist that the psychic recommends, actually comes from Featherston. She improvises something like, you th- you want to think you're in control, you're not in control. Mm. Mm. And it, and that's actually character work that she's doing for him, is trying to suggest yeah. the fact- <laughs> She's doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> he's doing this out of a sense of, of ego. I, I watched an interview with him on the disc, and he seems to not be very self-aware- I don't want to be too general about it, but he's sort of going on about how, like, look, I would, I had sort of gone away from acting. I was really focusing on my music because I don't like, I don't like that you have to have to audition for stuff, yeah, because I feel like. Yeah, that's the type. I don't like having gatekeepers for my art. Ooh. Is something he says. But then he, like, goes on about how, you know, and I got really into it, and, and at a certain point, I started to see, I started to see Oren as the demon and you know he was my enemy in the filming of the movie and i'm like dude just you're not you're not joaquin phoenix like (laughs) back off yeah would it surprise you to find out that he's basically only been in well yeah didn't you you hear me sean he's 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 against the system he doesn't like having the art controlled by gatekeepers he just wants to you know who else is against the system neil breen (laughs) you really want to be in the same Camp is Neil Breen. <laughs> He's good with a camera. He is. But they do sort of keep the connective tissue for some of these actors that you will see them return in different points. That both Mika Sloat and Katie Featherstone are in the second one. In the third one, Katie and her sister from the second one are featured in it. Katie's in the fourth one. Katie's actually in all of them, uh, as far as I remember. Mika turns up. At the end of Marked Ones again. Actually, no, scratch that. Katie Featherstone actually isn't in the very last one, The Ghost Dimension. But, you know, the little girl versions of Katie and her sister from the third one turn up again in Marked Ones and again in Ghost Dimension. So, like, they do it, they do this thing of traveling all across. Like, the, the teenager from Paranormal Activity 2 just turns up again in the Marked Ones for, like, one scene. Because um, she's, like, the expert that they contact because this has happened to her before. And she's, like, apparently done all of this research in the meantime, so she gives them this gigantic exposition dump about a coven of witches that <laughs> that she knows where their base is, too. So that when that when you get to the end of that movie and it's literally, like, the main characters go with a couple of gangbangers to the witches' base and they start, like, bringing out 
shotguns and automatic weapons and start just shooting these screaming women as they run out of the darkness at them. That's when the movie totally... It's so silly, but so (laughs) fun. Yeah. But with all of that connective tissue, I'm actually a little surprised that they didn't circle around to a couple of things from this movie that they established. Mm. I'm surprised that the psychic never comes back in the franchise. I'm surprised that the exorcist who was out of the country by the time Mika got his act together... I'm surprised that he doesn't end up featuring at some point. I'm surprised in their search to justify however many sequels, they didn't circle back to Diane, yeah. the, the woman we see on the internet. If anything, that is what your next movie should be. The person who be. got previously possessed. Yeah. That's a strange thing. In retrospect, having seen the rest of the story, it doesn't really pay off that that is the thing that the demon is trying to communicate with them. I do Ouija. like the idea that it's basically a demon going, I've I've done this shit before, you're fucked. But knowing the relationship that, and I mean, they do hand wave away, okay, because of the brainwashing that this coven is doing. Katie doesn't have a great amount of memories of what happened. But there are, there is a more personal taunt that the demon could do there rather than, mm. like, this is the story of, of Toby and <laughs> Diane. Um, <laughs> Two American kids growing up. In the hot lair. I do love how Toby puts the... I'm just gonna, gonna call him Toby. I love how Toby puts the picture in the attic, mm. right, up in the roof. Because I feel like that's him being like, okay, the slamming doors, it's getting a little old, so I'm gonna wrap it up just a little bit, just a little bit. I love how much that messed Katie up. Yeah. Like, mm. that photo should not exist anymore. Well, that's the thing that I think is a choice they make in the sequels that doesn't really work because then in the second movie, they've got to explain the photo. And so they get rid of the idea that all of the photos burned in the house. And instead, this is just a photo that Katie's sister had at her house. And it's the photo of her that her family uses to move the thing over. So they burned it as part of a ritual. I would have one preferred Toby just had it. Like, because Toby is kind of a time traveler. Yeah, kind of. Time doesn't particularly move in a linear way for him like it does with other people. It's like a time is something human beings live through. Yeah. And since Toby is not human, has never been human, time is more wibbly-wobbly. Loosey-goosey. Loosey-goosey. He's seen the time knife. And they do do a good job. I mean, we've been talking a lot about this movie in relation to its franchise, and I think that's fair because the movie itself... We can cover a lot of it really quickly, so if we want to do an episode on it, we are going to end up talking about some of this stuff. But it is something that the movie does really well, is establish a sense of backstory and history and context Mm. that we're not aware of. And that's a problem that maybe that the sequels go too heavily into explaining and contextualizing that backstory. But in this first movie, we get that feeling of there being something... Of this being a stalker, basically, of this being a thing that has returned to her after a period of time. And that is scarier because it implies, you know, it implies an attachment to her. It implies a targeting. Well, it also, for being that is a demon, it implies a very human obsession in itself is terrifying. Especially by the end when she's possessed. Mm. When you don't really know what the end game is... And you will find, like, the more you learn about the demon's endgame, the less... I mean, the idea of him trying to take physical form, okay. The idea of this coven of witches that he's using to do it. By the time you get to the end of Paranormal Activity 4 and there's, like, an army of witches in a suburban backyard, I can't. (laughs) It's too much. That idea that there is an endgame that we're not privy to, and that look that Possessed Katie gives the thing at the end, that's the scariest bit for me, Mm. is the smile. 
Yeah. Because there's a feeling of, like, I won. You also can't deny the impact of... You hear, like, Katie walks out of the room, screams, and then she... Well, Micah hears her, runs out, and the screams start turning into something more animalistic. Yeah. As she's killing him, then you get the silence, the thump, 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 yay! Out of the darkness, hitting the camera. That, I guarantee you, scared the shit out of so many people. Because in a movie that has been so still, you do not see that coming. And for as far as the stillness is concerned, and the stillness is a big part of it, but when the camera is in motion, that's really effective too. And it really shows off what a cunning choice it was to just use his house, because it does have a feeling of a continuous location. Like, they do go down from the bedroom, down the stairs in the living room, then out into the backyard in that scene where he goes and finds her out there, sort of catatonic. We do go from the living room out into the the front, and we see the street and the front driveway. I mean, it does give the feeling of a whole and complete house, that there is there are all of these different spaces to it, and we learn the geography, we learn the layout uh, in a way that, Again, some of the sequels don't necessarily capture The second one kind of does, but by the time you get to the third and fourth, that seamlessness starts to feel Mm. absent. It starts to feel more like sets. Yeah, for sure. And one of the real benefits here is closed space. You know, it's just the how. And that's incredibly powerful here because I do just have to say, for their budget, Katie and Mika, he's a day trader. Sure. She's just a student. They have that house. They're doing very well. They explain that away in the second movie as saying that their family is rich. That that is basically implied in the second movie to be the reason that they're in with the demon in the first place is that that's what he gave them in exchange for their worship. Nice, nice, nice. But again, that's a throwaway line in the second movie that I maybe it comes up in Ghost Dimension, but I've not seen it come up yet. But it certainly explained why the single mother in... The third movie has such a nice house. It's why Grandma (laughs) at the end of that has this giant farm with a stable and everything. It explains why these coven witches can have their bases all over the place so that they can send out their their agents to track down all of these kids to steal. Oh, God. But yes, that ending, we, we touched on it, we might as well just say, the way that they circle back around to that ending later on in the series is insane yeah yeah but i love it it's it's a really cool moment and i remember watching it the first time and being like oh wow when you walk out of that yeah at the end of the marked ones for the benefit of listeners at the end of the marked ones basically the only surviving main character is being cornered by all of the witches and the the possessed guy that's possessed by the demon at the farmhouse from the end of three because this is where he's found himself he sort of runs through a closet door that is, has, is surrounded by runes. And they've already established earlier on in the thing that there is this particular spell that these witches have in their books that create a portal, send people through time, but it can only send them to unholy places. And so in his desperation, he runs through this, this rune-covered door. And all of a sudden, he's in Katie and Mika's house. The moment you see the room, it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. And it's six years earlier, and he's there on the night of Mika's death, and Katie comes down the stairs, looks him straight in the eyes, dead face, and then just starts screaming 
for Mika without changing her expression. And Mika comes running down. That's why he screams, whoa, what the fuck? In mm. the, the first movie is because he's actually just seen a random teenager with a camera in his living room. Yeah. Mm. Katie goes all demonic, stabs Mika to death. And the protagonist of the Marked Ones, who is now possessed by Toby himself, comes like running through the portal after the other guy and, and kills the other teenager. And then Katie just goes over and turns off the camera before she goes upstairs again. That's what they've not been putting in the postscript of each movie. Like Mika's body is found like, like no... Mika's body plus a guy whose DNA matches a thirteen-year-old at this point. Back through the- that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, that would make more sense <laughs> than like this. No, but how insane would that be? If I had a kid from the future and the LA police are just like, "Fuck, I don't know." But that is that is both a fantastic twist. It's also a twist that only exists to be a twist. Yeah, and it is the mm. final sort of indication that, like, okay, guys, let's. Let's wrap this up. And I'm glad that they did take that final indication and wrap it up because... Mm. We're running out of train tracks, guys. Because obviously we'd seen this movie before like several times. Whenever we watch these movies with mum and dad, we always like to pinpoint one object that's been in frame that is the cause of everything. So in this first one, fucking it's bear. the polar bear that's in one of those other bedrooms. Because it's got the claws, it's got the little feet running around. When we around. first watched this... I, I, out loud, said, it's the toy bear. That's who the demon is in this. And I haven't been shown any evidence to make it seem like it's not. That Toby isn't just living in there whenever he's not doing his thing. I think Katie is really good. Katie is good. There's a reason they keep bringing her back yeah. in sequels, because she is really good as menacing, possessed Katie, but also she gets better when she's not dealing with Mika. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that she, her improv with her on-screen sister is really good in the second and third movie. There's like a personality, a persona to them. And, and this is the kind of thing is that they managed to get in pretty much all except maybe the marked ones they managed to come up with at least one person in the main cast who you really like and are really on board with. Mm. I mean, it's it's Katie in this first one. It is the the teenager, the girl, in the second one, and I think maybe Katie's sister as well. In the third one, it's everyone. I think that's got the best cast of them. Mm. But in the fourth one, it's the teenage girl and her maybe boyfriend. Uh, teenage girl, by the way, a very young Catherine Newton. And they do a good job of actually giving you characters that are appealing. Well, they're people. Can't say that about some of the cookie-cutter, bland, dog shit, found footage, ghost movies that you get all the time. Like, there was that Amityville one that I watched that was just bad. Because this is one of those movies that shows how it can work. Yeah. This started the trend. When it's good, it's really good, because, like we've said before, you have to be so careful. But when it's bad... It's painful. Yeah, this movie is great, but it did convince every poor filmmaker that it's a good way of making just a few quick bucks by shoveling out some random piece of fan footage dog shit that they've made. I do think we're coming up to the end of it. 
But I mean, how good are those trailers, though, for it? Mm. Those TV spots where it's just people reacting in the mm. audience. Well, that's what you got to trade on because that's what... brilliant. I am glad that we did this movie as the this first movie as the episode because that's the only one that really has a trailer that recaps the story in a way that works for us. Because the other yeah. ones they do an interesting thing from two onwards where the trailers are a lot of little scenes that aren't actually in the movie, or they're like variants of scenes in the movie. But they play out differently. The most obvious one is they take the Bloody Mary scene from the third movie. And in mm. the trailer, it's it's the two little girls doing it by themselves, which isn't what it is in the movie. And they do it. And then Katie screams and with the torch and scares her sister. And they're all like laughing, Katie, don't. And then they run out. And as the door opens, there is a figure standing behind them. Mm. That's not in the movie. It's not remotely in the movie. I do like the fact that they, in the marketing focus on the audience reactions because ultimately that's what the director was fighting for the audience reactions that's what he used to convince people that the movie had merit it's the best way to watch these movies being in a dark room with a group of other people is the way to watch them because there is an electric feeling when you're watching a good horror film in an audience and you feel that just thunderous Base tone. It crawls up your spine, and it has a physiological effect mm. on you. So, I do think we've come up to the end of our discussion on Paranormal Activity. So, now we're going to say who our MVP was, what our favorite serial sequence was, and who we would recast with our podcast patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> me! Knock, knock, who's there? It's me. I'll start us off, and I'll say that my MVP here has got to be Aaron Pelly. I wasn't sure before I did the production history who it was going to be, but really after learning just the amount of dedication that Pelly had to this project, getting it done, getting it released, getting it released in the way that he wanted it released, he really gambled, and he gambled a lot of his own money, and it paid off for him brilliantly. He... Hasn't really directed much since. He's directed a couple of movies, but he's done producing work and, you know, he he got to quit the day job he hated. And he makes a lot of smart choices in the making of this. And he's he's making that money. Yeah, he understood the constraints that he had to work with and he took those restraints and turned them into positives in a lot of Mm. different ways. So I've got to give it to him. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it's got to be the ending. I mean, the ending really is the creepiest part. It is the culmination of the horror. It, it, it does just stop. It doesn't really have sort of a finale so much as it just has a final scene. But really, when you think about this movie, you think about the ending. So I've got to go with that. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character actor John Lithgow, what, of the two male characters in here, there's really only one option, isn't it? And it's the yeah. psychic. We've got to bring him in to explain what's going on. And I, I think that would be, he would be good at that. He would be able to do that really well, make it interesting, sell the importance and the gravity of what it is that he's saying, make us trust him in that first scene. But then also at the end, you know, that scene where he just sort of turns up for maybe 30 seconds and he's like, no, 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 no. It's like that uh, little clip of Grandpa Simpson walking into the burlesque house. (laughs) Yeah, you could get some good Lithgow there. I mean, this is the only movie we've done really 
as maybe Cloverfield and, and Blair Witch, but we we weren't doing this segment when we were doing Blair Witch. This is the first time we've really done a movie where his inclusion in any capacity would break the film because this whole movie yeah. is predicated on being a found footage movie populated by unknown actors. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It just would not work to have him really as he as any character, but mm. we that is not the point of this exercise. If we were just picking which to see him in, it would be both a better fit for him and less intrusive to have him as the psychic. Um, I have to give my MVP to director Owen Pelly. He just believed in the project, you know? And hearing about all the stuff he had to do, how much he put on the line to get this scene and shown the way he always wanted it shown is honestly remarkable. It's It'd be inspiring if it weren't so fortunate. He put the effort in, but it's luck as well. That goes into the way he shot the film. There's such care here, and such inventiveness as well. That trick covering up the viewfinder on the camera, brilliant, inspired. That's less work Mika has to do. You love to see a success story in one of these incredibly independent productions. Incredibly well done. And you love to see someone move into the industry they want to be in, you know? And of course, it started a franchise, you know, so he's still earning stipends from that. My favorite scene or sequence is the trick they pull with the Ouija board. Uh, obviously, doing stuff with moving the planchette, psychic mediums and spiritualists have been doing that for nigh on 100 years. But how well it comes together with the blowing of the leaves and the blinds, the Ouija board being set on fire, not only is that incredibly well realized, super dangerous to have an open fire in your own home. <laughs> so, I gotta respect the balls on that, you know? Because that could have gotten out of hand <laughs> real bad. Who I'd recast with John Lithgow? It has to be the psychic. It cannot be anyone else. We have limited choices here. It's only one option. I think the scene he would play best is the scene where he comes in near the end. Is like, I've seen this film before, and I don't like the ending. Peace out, gang. <laughs> I think Lithgow would play the character incredibly well. He has the ability to sell the gravitas... And it's such a small role that he, yes, still becomes distracting. That's kind of unavoidable with someone with actual star power being in a project like that. But it's so he's less distracting, you know? Yeah, I give it to Owen Pelly. The amount of dedication and love that he showed this project, it was a Hail Mary. And it succeeded for him. It's directed very well. He's able to do a lot with very limited means and it just works yeah so i give it to owen pelly my favorite scene or sequence is that ending from the moment she gets out of bed and starts being fucking weird and that scream that guttural howl almost is just a brilliant piece of both performance and sound design. Mm, the sound design here is really good. We didn't talk about that, but it's phenomenal. That was so well done, and if they don't consider her Scream Queen just for that, then I think there's something wrong with them. Alter the fact that you just hear thud, 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 nothing. Form! And he just crashes against this camera. It's just a brilliant piece of filmmaking. For who I would get our patron Saint John Lithgow to play, it has to be the psychic, because otherwise there's no one else for him to be, and you can't play him, have him as the demon, because there isn't an actor playing the demon yet. It just doesn't work with him, though. 
it's the only character he could play, and he'd play it well, but he's just too well known. It breaks the immersion of the film, and it just wouldn't work. The moment you see Lithgow, you'd be like, unless John Lithgow is doing this in his days off from filming in LA, then it doesn't really work. So I think that's really the character. So I think next we're going to do whether we are pro or anti paranormal activity. How about you start off, Lawson? I'm going to say pro. I think that this is a movie that is really well made, very tightly constructed. It it has its problems, but they're not enough to talk me down from being pro. I think beyond the sheer impact that it made, it is a really good movie on its own. I think maybe some of the revisionist history that people have arguing that this movie has more problems than it does kind of comes from baggage that the franchise gave to it in retrospect but as its own thing this is a really strong really groundbreaking movie well made largely well performed and i'm gonna vote pro yeah i'm gonna have to second everything lawson said a lot of that baggage does come from the sequels not only that it comes from the oversaturation a lot of people feel found footage has in the horror space it's going away but remember that period of a few years where it was just like non-stop paranormal activity, non-stop found footage stuff. I think a lot of baggage comes from that, but I have to give it a pro vote. It's just too well done, too much effort was put in, and you love to see the dream realized, and it's realized incredibly well. It's tense, it's still, and it's ultimately effective. John? Yeah, for me, I'm pro this. Just The impact it has had on horror is immense. It's one of those watermarks like Blair Witch where it really propelled this idea of fan footage as a genre not only of horror but of film into the mainstream consciousness at just the point where the legacy of Blair Witch was just dipping a little. This came in to really revitalize that style of filmmaking. And also, the quality is very high here. Oren Pelly had a really good idea, and he was able to do it with a fairly low budget, all things considered. A lot of his own money going towards it, towards so much of the behind-the-scenes work. He gave so much for this Hail Mary of a film, and it worked out for him. It is spooky, but it needs to be. I wasn't necessarily scared by it. I was just more interested by the filmmaking behind it and the characters which is really where this movie works very well so i give it pro so there you have it ladies and gentlemen we are a pro paranormal activity podcast both the movie and the phenomena i hope that didn't surprise anybody (laughs) you know we are huge (laughs) found footage fans and, you know, we just like it. It's it's different than most of what we watch. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Do the Candy Counter for joining myself and on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Paranormal Activity? What is your favorite found footage horror film? Hopefully some of you all out there have some unknown picks for that. Because I know that a lot of people did found footage, and... Some of them have probably been good. Uh, you can also like, comment, rate, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that when you're uh, commenting on the podcast apps, 
Depending on what service you use, it could be for individual episodes or the show on the whole. You can also leave episode recommendations there. Hey, gang, Toby here. No, not that one. I'm really amped for Christmas. I love the season. I love the gingerbread, Christmas carols, and the feeling of giving that Christmas creates. Of course, we have our grandpa's drills happening right now. It is really important that we stay vigilant for those terrible Yule lads and their dark master. Harley has been quiet. That book that showed up has him confused and oftentimes sad. But his mood has picked up due to the Christmas music. The dulcet tones of John Lithgow calm his troubled mind. Okay, did you... That's interesting coincidence. If it was a coincidence at all. Yeah, it just... It lined up like that, I suppose. <laughs> the terrible, terrible Yule lads, like... Spoon liquor and window peeper. But perverts they are. Uh, so, Lawson, what do we have next week? Well, next week we will be doing a different movie. We will be getting away from horror, which we've been on for a few weeks and we might be going back to in a couple of weeks. I'm not quite sure yet. There's some stuff in the in the cooker that I'm waiting to see what they're like. But uh, next week we will be talking about... Law-Abiding Citizen, the action thriller uh, from 2009, starring Gerard Butler and Jamie Foxx. If you would like to watch along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Binge, Foxtel Now, and Stan, as well as for purchase or rental on the Amazon, YouTube, Apple, and Fetch stores. However, it is only available in 4K on the Apple Store. Right, so join us next week for when we discuss Law-Abiding Citizen. Until then, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis.